Let's now look at God's Word from Luke 14, verses 1 through 14. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. The word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word that uh, in your word we find ultimate truth, that we find hope, the hope of the gospel. And I pray, Father, that uh, as we discuss your word this morning, that the gospel, that uh, Jesus himself will become uh, clear to us, that we might uh, look upon him and long to be satisfied by him alone. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the gospel is uh, far more than just knowledge that Jesus has died to save us from sin. It is that, but it is also an announcement, announcement of the coming kingdom. When Jesus comes and he says, repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, uh, he is saying there is a new world order here. We are under new ownership, and that owner is, is me, is Jesus. And with that, with that announcement, with the gospel and the coming of the kingdom, comes a whole new set of values, um, which is why it's very confusing when, when there are people who, uh, who say they believe in Jesus as Savior, but their life does not bear that out. Their life does not seem to bear witness to the set of kingdom values that Jesus values. Uh, and so as Jesus teaches on the kingdom, he tells parables often, and, and these parables, as you probably know, are object lessons about the kingdom. What does the kingdom look like? How, how can we compare the kingdom? How, how do we understand the kingdom and what it means? And this is what we see happening in Luke 14. Uh, but first we see Jesus at a Sabbath feast. And it's interesting because you might wonder, why is Jesus 
had a Sabbath feast with a bunch of Pharisees. I mean, why would they invite him, and why would he come? Uh, because they didn't exactly like him very much. Um, and the thing that we have to understand is that it's one of those uh, strategies of keeping your friends close and your enemies closer, right? I mean, the, the Pharisees want Jesus close because they want to scrutinize everything he does. That's what it says there, is they're watching him closely. Uh, and so what we kind of gather from this is that they actually invited Jesus to the Sabbath feast to trap him. It's a trap. And so they got this guy who comes before him who's got dropsy. And you may not know what dropsy is. I don't think it's a term that we use very much anymore. Maybe it is. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. But apparently dropsy is when you have a buildup of fluid somewhere on your body, and it can be evident of a, of a much more problematic condition with either your kidneys or your liver or even your heart. Um, now, one of the things about the Pharisees, as you well know, is they had these rules about everything. They had rules about uh, how much you should tithe and the exact amounts of spices you should tithe and, and definitely had all these rules. In fact, I believe there were 39 rules that they made up themselves about what you should and should not do on the Sabbath. And one of those rules was that you should not heal or give medical attention to anyone unless it was a life or death situation. So this man with dropsy presumably is suffering, but probably not in danger of dying on that Sabbath day. They had, they had previous run-ins like this with Jesus. Uh, in Luke 6, Jesus heals a man with a withered hand. Again, not a life or death situation. Uh, in Luke 13, he heals a woman with a disabling spirit. Um, and in each case, Jesus does something that goes against their rules. But also in each case, the text says the Pharisees had nothing to say when he healed them. And that's because when Jesus heals somebody on the Sabbath, he's not breaking any of God's laws, and they know that. They know that all he's doing is going against their rules. And so the Pharisees' rule-keeping, one of the things we see about it, uh, is that the Pharisees' rule-keeping actually stands in the way of mercy, and therefore it's a great injustice. The Pharisees do not value justice because they value their own rules instead. But Jesus shows us that justice is highly valued in God's kingdom. Jesus perfectly exemplifies the spirit behind God's law, the heart of God's law. Uh, and one of those things is, as we see in Deuteronomy 32, that God loves justice. If you go through and you read uh, some of the different texts in Deuteronomy, um, there, there is much that God has to say about how He both loves and desires justice and how He despises those who pervert justice. And the Pharisees certainly pervert justice by their rules. Jesus tries to get them to understand what they're doing. Um, he gives some practical examples. You know, if you had an ox and it fell down a well, which by the way, I I guess I picture wells as being really small because I don't know how an ox fits in a well, but maybe it did. Maybe they were bigger than I think. Or, or definitely if you had a son who fell down a well, would you leave that ox or especially your child in a well for a whole day just because it's the Sabbath? Sorry, kid. Just hang. It's okay. You got water. You're good. I mean, that's, that is, that's an injustice. 
to put the, these arbitrary Sabbath, Sabbath laws over the well-being of your animal, especially over the well-being of your child, is an injustice. But that's what the Pharisees were doing. And, it, and we see that, there, that their values, what the Pharisees valued, clashed with kingdom values, with Jesus' values. Um, and this will always happen when we make our rules and our standards, the standards of our culture, ultimate. An example of this from our history, from history of the American church, particularly in the South, is racism. How, how is it that in our history we have racism occurring because of the actions of church people? And then also, probably for, for more people, racism occurring and people standing idly by and doing nothing. How, how is that? How can we have that with, with the church? And the answer is by exalting cultural standards over God's law. That's the only way. Because when we look at God's law and the heart behind God's law, there is no room for racism. There's only room for justice. The kingdom of God is characterized by justice because it was established by justice. Uh, Luke 4, 18 and 19, as Jesus goes to a synagogue, he's handed a scroll. And he just opens it up and starts reading where, where it's been left off. And he says, From Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. God values justice. The, king, the kingdom has been established by justice. And yet, the Pharisees, as we've said it already, placed their own rules ahead of this. And so that's why Jesus in Matthew 23-4 speaks of them and says that they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. And so later on in that chapter, He pronounces these woes on the scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. God values justice. And He despises oppression. Do we feel the same way? Do we value justice? Do our values line up with God's values? You may be wondering, where do I start? I, sure, justice sounds great, but what does that mean for me? How do I do justice in my day-to-day -day life? Well, the first thing I would say is to look to God for justice. Uh, God is the one, ultimately, who, who says vengeance is mine. Who says that his, his throne has been established by justice, and so we ought to pray for justice. If there's anything that we're aware of, that's an, un, an injustice, whether it's uh, people who are unjustly imprisoned or people who are, who are suffering at the hands of some oppressor, we must pray for those people and for God to bring about justice on their part. But we must also do justice. This is in Micah 6.8 when it talks about justice 
humility and mercy, it's not just to want justice, it says to do justice. You don't need to look far to find ways to do justice. Uh, there, are, there are organizations that seek to, to do justice in different ways throughout the world, one of them being International Justice Mission, which is well known for uh, seeking to uh, rescue people from the, um, the dangers of the, of the sex trade and many other uh, injustices. And then there's also organizations in Chattanooga you can support. There's an organization called Second Life Chattanooga that does a similar thing with sex trafficking. And they depend on financial gifts, on volunteers, on prayer. Or you may just find that you come across someone in your daily life who's experiencing some sort of injustice. Why not befriend them and ask them, what would justice look like to you? How can I help you with that? How can I be your aid? How can I stand up with you, for you? What do you think? Standing up to injustice, speaking out against injustice, reflects God's heart. It reflects God's law. And Jesus tried to show this to the Pharisees, but they had no response. They had nothing to say. They sat there silent. So Jesus says, okay, if you're not going to talk, I will. I'll tell you a parable. I'll tell you a parable about a wedding feast. And it's in this wedding feast parable that we see the second value of the kingdom that Jesus wants to, to show us, and that's humility. And this is especially, when we talk about humility, we're talking about humility on all levels, but especially in relationship to God. And our relationship with God ought to reflect uh, a relationship of our coming to Him humbly in submission to Him as our Lord. Uh, but the Pharisees show that they have a worldview of pride. They valued pride. They valued their positioning, their status. And you could even see this in the way they seated themselves at a feast. So feasts in those days uh, would usually actually have a, a kind of a ranking system of wherever you sat indicated your, your rank at that feast, your rank of importance. So there was always a, a most honored guest. And this most honored guest would sit at the very middle uh, of a, like a U-shaped couch at, a, at the head of a table. And each one of these U-shaped couches would seat three people. And so the ranking system started with that most honored guest, and then it went, guest to the left on that couch is second most important, guest to the right, third most important, and then on down the line, all the way to the kitty table, where you, you, know, you sit at like Thanksgiving dinner and stuff. So this is why, by the way, when uh, James and John come to Jesus and ask, can we sit at your right hand and left in the, in the kingdom, that's kind of what they're talking about. They're we want to be your second and third most important people. Um, one of the reasons why they're called the Sons of Thunder, which is a great, like a great biker name, I think. But, so anyway, these Pharisees competed for the best seats. It's, I mean, imagine if you were invited to a wedding, and you're, you're a friend of the family. You're, you're not in the wedding party. You're, just, you're a friend of the family. You're an invited guest. But imagine if you went and you said, I'm going to sit in the maid of honor seat. I don't care that there's a maid of honor here that's got a name tag for that seat, but I'm going to sit there. I mean, that, that's not really culturally acceptable, right? But this is what was going on. 
They, they would try to come in and force their way into the most honored seats and, ex- and either hope or expect that the host would just say, oh, okay, well, since you got here first and sat there, I guess that means you're the, the second most honored person here or the fifth most honored person here. Congratulations. What Jesus is saying, that represents a worldview of pride. That, that's like self-identifying as equal to the host. When in reality, you're only there because of the host's goodwill. You're only there because of the gracious invitation of the host in the first place. When we, when we take this parable and we equate it to God's kingdom, we can see this is why so many people are religious. Religion is, is a huge thing in our world. People love the idea that we can manage our own spiritual portfolios. That we can keep a scorecard of our moral achievements and then hand it to God and be like, here you go, look at what I've done. You've you got to put me somewhere high up because of my achievements. This is very much like the Pharisee in Luke 18 that we see just a few chapters later who comes and talks about how great he is, especially compared to all these other terrible people around him, like the tax collector who's praying next to him. And it's kind of like he's coming in and he's saying, He's not coming in with humility, looking to God as his Savior, as his hope. He's coming in and saying, hey, buddy, you and me are, are kind of the same, we're on the same plane here. Look, let's compare notes. How much good have you done? I mean, do you see the pride in that kind of a worldview of thinking that we are able to come before God and say, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of on your level. That's what the Pharisees were doing. It's not a worldview of humility. The religious will not enter the kingdom of heaven. It is those who respond to the reality of their sin and their rebellion before God with humility, with repentance and with faith, depending on Christ alone to save much like the tax collector we read about in Luke 18 who beat his breast and, and said, help me, I'm unworthy. And in the same place, in Luke 18, just as in Luke 14, Jesus describes the situation by saying, he who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This echoes Proverbs 25, where we read, Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great. For it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. Anywhere there's ever been a king, any kingdom or realm, even fictional realms, you only come and see the king by invitation unless you're one of his very, very close family or advisors. You don't just show up into the throne room unannounced and expect to get an audience and expect to be treated, especially to be treated with equality before the king. If you did that, there would be humiliation. And so, we're seeing here that Jesus is saying when you walk, when you walk through this life, especially as the kingdom of God is now here, we must walk in humility. Walk humbly because it's the only way we can walk. Those who think we can walk with pride are walking in a way that is 
not coherent with reality. But the good news is that when we walk humbly, we walk in step with the King Himself. Because the Kingdom has been established by humility. 2 Corinthians 8 9, Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. Our invitation to the Kingdom of God depends solely on Jesus switching places with us. On Jesus becoming a humble servant, taking our rags, our poverty, and giving us His riches. Taking our sin and our rebellion upon Himself and giving us His righteousness. His right standing with God the Father. And by the way, we are passive, not just in, in how we are justified, but we're passive even in how that justification is applied to us by the Holy Spirit. There's a word in this, in this text, in this parable, that's used often. Uh, you'll, you'll see it as either invite or call. And it's almost always the same Greek root word, kaleo. Like, let me kaleo you up on the phone. That's a good way to remember that. But it's the same word that's used in Romans 8.30, which says, And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. And by the way, folks, I don't know if you get that, but that is all passive on our part. God does everything in that verse. We do nothing. It's a humbling thing to sit and let that, let that soak in for a second that in salvation we are totally passive. We do nothing except repent and depend on Him in faith. So our response to this should never be elitist. should never be pride. It should always be humility and thankfulness. As, as Paul says again in Ephesians 1, 3 and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Our lives should be marked by humble, gospel thankfulness for the way that that God has blessed us in Christ, both in our theology and also practically. It's difficult to, to walk this way in our society because we live in a society that celebrates pride. It's, everything is about your achievements and, and what you are able to bring to the table and how great we can be and the, the progress that we can make as human beings. We're taught to fight tooth and nail for every single one of our preferences. We even do this in the church. As we move, uh, Lord willing, as we grow as well, we have to understand that when more people comes more preferences. Gospel humility is a call to die to our preferences. Or, or I should say, to die to the need to always get what we prefer. Humility Gospel humility is a call to consider the needs of others as more significant than our own, just as Christ did in His humiliation. Or as Tim Keller says, to think of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's simply thinking of yourself less. It's not a false humility, a self-pity, a, a wallowing and some kind of, of self-pity, but it is simply taking 
a back seat. Simply saying, I don't always need to have my needs met. I don't always need to get the attention. It is God who exalts the humble. The humble do not need to exalt themselves. So humility is really the linchpin in all of this. Humility, when we are driven to humility or when, when we come naturally from a humble background and, and are able to see our humility before God, it shifts our focus away from our needs and our values and on to Jesus and His values. It shifts us to what Jesus wants. What Jesus wants is justice and mercy. And mercy is the third value of the kingdom that we'll, we'll talk about. As Jesus wraps up this dialogue with the Pharisees, he, he, we come back to the scene and he's, again, he's wrapped up the parable and he's addressing the host that invited him to the Sabbath party. And he says, when you have a party next time, don't just invite the people that you always invite. Don't invite just your family or, or your rich friends or your cool friends. Invite the humiliated. Invite the poor. Invite the sick. Invite the people who can't pay you back. And this shows that in the kingdom, the kingdom of God, Jesus values mercy and He values hospitality toward those who cannot respond with hospitality. Now there's nothing wrong with fellowship with people like us. There's nothing wrong with hanging out with the people that... Uh, do the same things we do, or have the same interests, or the same backgrounds. But if that's all we do, then we're not becoming kingdom-oriented, we're becoming tribal. We are, and we're, we're missing out on opportunities to show mercy. Teenagers, let me uh, just say something to you real quick. Because I think this is a, this is a point that is really hard for for us in our teen years. Um, we, are, we are prone as a, as a teenager to only want to hang out with the same people, only want to hang out especially with the people who will make us look cooler. Um, but I, I would ask you this, is that actually a friendship? Because it sounds a little bit more like a business arrangement to me. You, you hang out with me, make me look cool, I'll do something for you in return. I would just challenge you, I'm, I'm, again, I'm not saying don't ever hang out with the people you like. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what Jesus is saying. But I would challenge you with this. If you want to be a real friend to someone, like actually be a friend to someone without worrying about what they're giving you in return, go be friends with someone who has no coolness to share with you. That's probably going to be really difficult. It's a difficult for an adult too. But, but look, Think about their needs. Think about their life. Think about the, the difficulties they have lived with for however many years they've been on this earth. And think about the hope you might give them simply by coming to them and saying, hey, I'm your friend. That, that kind of kingdom value reflects the gospel. It reflects the kingdom it magnifies the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and it gives someone an ultimate hope. Are our values in conflict with mercy? Romans 12.13 tells us to contribute to the needs of the saints and to seek to show hospitality. We see 
this command and similar commands all throughout the Bible. We see it in the book of Ruth where Boaz gives kindness or mercy to Ruth, who is a, who is a social outcast, a Moabite woman. Uh, he just allows her to glean in his field. Eventually, she becomes his wife. But this, that whole book, the whole story of Ruth, has kindness or mercy on display. And that's the kind of kingdom mercy Jesus is calling us to portray. And again, it's because the kingdom is established by this kind of mercy. We talked about Ephesians 1, 3, and 4 earlier. Let's move on to 5 and 6, where Paul says, In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. As Christians, those who have been invited and included in the kingdom of God, we do so simply because we have been adopted into that family by God, seated at His table, all by grace alone. Not because of our accomplishments, not because of what we bring to the table, but simply for the, to the praise of God's glorious grace. This frees us up for sacrifice. The main thing that frees us up for sacrifice, though, is the real feast. So in conclusion, I'll ask you this. What if your values are at odds with kingdom values. What if you, you say, yeah, in my head, I, I kind of believe Jesus is Savior. I believe some of that stuff. Really, my life doesn't reflect any of this stuff. I got my own values I live by. Well, how do we change? Or how does God change us? Or how do we want to change in the first place? Because this is costly. Uh, it costs us coolness, for one thing. It may cost us time and money. It may cost us our lives. The gospel makes you sacrificial. And that's the first thing to say is it comes back to the gospel. That change comes from Christ. It comes from Christ taking hold of us, capturing our attention as our treasure. And it depends on His humiliation. Philippians 2 has been mentioned several times in this service today where uh, Jesus emptied Himself, did not consider equality with God the Father a thing to be grasped, and he emptied himself and came as a humble servant. Uh, Jesus lived about the most humble life you could live after having been born in a very humble way and then died probably the most humiliating death anybody could die at that time on a tool of Roman execution reserved for the worst of criminals. Jesus is the one who humbled himself and has been exalted. And by placing our faith and trust in Him as Savior, He exalts us to His kingdom with Him. And that means we have an eternal hope. That's the second reason why change is always possible. Because we have a, an eternal hope that this is not the real feast. So many people view this life as eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you may die, as if this is only, the only feast we got. We better enjoy it while we can. But I'm telling you, and, and more importantly, don't worry about what I say. Worry about what the Bible says. There is a feast yet to come that will put all these feasts to shame. Revelation 19 describes it. It says, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory 
For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Nothing compares to that feast that awaits us. To that feast when we are united in glorification with Jesus Christ, our, our bridegroom. When we are washed clean, when, we are, when, when sin, sorrow, suffering, fear, pain, death, all of it is removed, and it's not even a consideration anymore. That's the real feast. That's what we await. That's why we must view this life through resurrection lenses. Looking at it always with the resurrection into that glory in view. Seeing Jesus as reigning on the throne, even right now, whatever you're going through, whatever circumstances that afflict you, Jesus is on the throne, reigning. And He has gone to prepare a feast for you, for us. So we count ourselves blessed, not because of what happens or what might happen or what we hope for to happen in this life, but because of the blessings Jesus will give us in eternal life. That is why, ultimately, we count ourselves blessed. That's why our values can become Jesus' values. So do our lives reflect pride? A need to hold on to our preferences or a need to govern things and control things by our rules? Or do our lives bear witness to Jesus, to His kingdom, to His kingdom values? Do our lives bear witness to justice, to mercy, to walking humbly with Jesus? Do our lives point people to the King and to the glory that awaits us at the real feast? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are amazed by your love, by your grace, that you would take humble sinners like ourselves and by your grace exalt us to a place where even we have an eternal hope. We thank you for all that you have done through Jesus Christ, our Savior, and by your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in your name. Amen.